Hey everybody, The Talking Book is a non-profit audiobook recording studio in Asheville, North Carolina. If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org, that's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville, we record books in a booth, here's the show. Hey everybody, this is Chris Hartram, and you're listening to the Talking Book Podcast. The Talking Book Podcast, where you can hear your favorite authors, really cool authors, really good writers, reading from their work, from new books, works in progress, uh, excerpts, readings. It's like a reading. It's like going to a reading, except I come to you. I come... I come to you, and you're probably in your Corvette right now, just listening to the sound of my voice, me saying, I come to you. But uh, today, uh, I have a a reading from a friend of mine and a really great author named Brad Phillips. Brad Phillips is the author of Essays and Fictions, and this book, which you're going to hear a piece from, uh, is entitled, titled at the moment, The Secret History of YouTube and the History Channel. It's going to be published by Tyrant Books, I believe. So please sit back and listen to this reading by Mr. Brad Phillips. Uh, the following is a is an excerpt from the, my forthcoming book with Tyrant Books called "The Secret History of the History Channel." Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, October 1998, Married to His Murderer, a Pal Braxton story. Chapter 2, John Briefly. John knew that grizzly bears can hibernate for up to seven months. He wondered, when the bear finally emerges, emaciated and lonely, does it question the reality it finds itself in? When they wake up and return to their natural environment, grizzly bears typically spend several weeks in a state of, quote, walking hibernation, often appearing drunk or in a stupor while they acclimatize to their surroundings and regain regain control of their bodies. Quote, black bears have been known to den in a human's basement over the winter months, end quote. Has a bear ever come out of hibernation, unaware it had intentionally chosen to hibernate in the first place? Could waking hibernation be a permanent state, and not just for bears? The knife John had always used for slicing bagels looked just like a knife for slicing bagels. Sometimes lately, it also looked like a knife for slicing throats. When the knife looked like a throat-slicing knife, John worried about himself and dropped it on the floor. Nothing had changed, but something had changed. This is, in fact, the immutable state under which all living creatures operate. (laughs) There were small things, moments, that instead of causing John to question his external world, led him to question his internal one. He had that feeling of hearing a noise in the house, searching the house, and finding nothing amiss. Certainly in the past, John had been institutionalized, but as far as he knew, this was normal for all teenagers. As his mother had told him, puberty and delusion go hand in hand. The most noticeable change in his thinking was related to his wife, Jamie. Typically in a marriage, we accept and imagine our spouses urinating. We even brush our teeth while they do it next to us. 
He lived his life assuming that all married people are, to some extent, in complete denial about their partner's relationship to defecation. Not only do we not notice it, we often imagine they don't do it. The lingering smell of a bowel movement can often be chalked up to an innocent fart or steamed broccoli rotting in the garbage. We can even convince ourselves it's simple lingering evidence of our own previous excretion. John had taken thousand shits in his life, more than 90% unassisted. He was all too aware of the gruesome process involved in depositing his last few days' food in the toilet, what physical adjustments and efforts were required to get it out of his body, and the unspeakable horror of the cleanup ritual and daily reckoning with shame generated by all of it. Lately, whenever Jamie went into the bathroom and closed the door, John would feel desperate for the sound of the flush, the sink, and her return from the bathroom within three minutes. Three minutes was the average time it took her to urinate and wash up. In the past, if she was in there for more than three minutes, he assumed she was showering. Even though when she was showering, he could hear the sounds of the faucet and the fumbling of drop soap brushing her hair, her teeth, or putting on makeup. The thought of her doing anything else, including that something he himself might have done earlier, just never crossed his mind. But now, for reasons John didn't understand, if she was in there for more than three minutes, he assumed she was taking a huge and difficult dump, the type that requires so much exertion it turns your face red, and you need to take a deep breath to muster the strength to go on. He didn't want to think about his wife this way. Who would? It wasn't that he'd just become aware that Jamie was in there taking a shit. It was worse than that. So much worse. Once she was in the bathroom for, say, seven minutes, John not only started to visualize the things he saw and experienced when he himself took a shit, now enacted by his stunningly beautiful wife, he'd also begun to visualize things invisible to the one emptying their bowels. John had changed his regrettable son Alex's diaper innumerable times, so was aware of what truly went down during the wiping process, something adults could, aside from checking toilet paper for progress and cleansing, avoid knowing too much about. But he'd also seen videos, once he deeply regretted renting, documenting the narrative of an urge to defecate, the inhumane act of defecation itself, and finally the return of the anus to its resting state, all shot POV. He was keenly aware of the sights, physical processes, and unpleasant textures that accompanied his own daily experience. But, as proof of a benevolent God, there are things that the defecator themselves, resulting from physical blind spots, cannot see. Now that he knew his wife was sometimes squeezing one out in the bathroom, he saw far more of what she was doing than she ever could. No matter how hard he tried, and he did try, it appeared he was destined to watch Jamie defecate as if he were a small creature looking up from the bottom of the bowl. He'd always thought Jamie had a cute asshole. Those days were over, even when fucking her from behind when it looked like a belly button. His unwanted visions had corporealized her ass to such an extent that he could now only fuck her missionary style or with her on top. Otherwise, he was reminded of nature films where hyenas tear into the soft underbellies of gazelles while they're still alive. 
There was no predicting what excretory expression she'd perform on any given day, so his mind's eye was delivered one of various options. From there on in, until she re-emerged from the bathroom, he wasn't able to get off whichever ride he'd been put on that day. It's hard to conceive of hoping for one option over the other, but if he had a say in the matter, John would prefer a fairly simple and watered-down product to exit her body. Reasons for this. It's shorter, quicker, and involves less physical transformation. The most unbearable and nauseating option he'd be presented with was that of a difficult bowel movement, which involved pushing. In these situations, he'd see Jamie's asshole bloom like some grotesque flower, basically turning inside out to reveal one of a myriad of colors on the yellow to black scale, with the worst being a combination similar to a caramel bar stepped on then microwaved. The harder she had to work at getting the job done, the more of the inside of her body appeared on the outside, ribbed pink tissue not meant for human eyes. The larger the stool, and in these moments he was amazed at the expansive capacity of the human asshole, realizing those arm-sized butt plugs he'd seen in sex shops were in fact utilitarian and not gag gifts. The more effort his wife undertook, which involved both more grunting and more resistance from the anus, where it would sometimes decide to close back up after delivering introductory chunks or contract until she, she was prepared to make another attempt. This part, blessedly, is the part we ourselves do not see while on the toilet ourselves. Once her body was satisfied, he was shocked by how quickly her asshole, agape just seconds ago, would snap back into place. The worst part was over, although what followed was still really also the worst part. Typically, with heavier deposits, water would splash back on Jamie's ass. However, sometimes it wasn't just water that smacked splash back, but small flecks of fecal matter. This led John to observe just how comprehensively she wiped. He saw Jamie use an overabundance of paper, which comforted him. It truly frightened him that some people wiped their asses with just one or two pieces. Needless to say, the first eight-tenths of the process were truly gut-wrenching, and the urge to vomit could be overwhelming. While most of, the focus, well, most of us focus on the orifice and its few surrounding inches, John was now of the belief that the entire ass should be wiped, that any segment, segment sinking into the bowl must be addressed. He was the type that wiped his ass until the toilet paper returned as white as fresh snow but he found that Jamie was slightly less fastidious, often content with a few faint brown brushstrokes on the paper. This awareness pulled his unwanted visions into the real world, where he would sometimes have difficulty watching her settle into the couch or bend over to put on her shoes. After Jamie returned from the bathroom, John found eye contact difficult and had begun to celebrate her arrival with a much-needed gin and tonic similar to the cigarettes people smoke after sex. Thankfully, as she was fairly neglectful, Jamie didn't notice his face was often shiny with sweat. When he was eight, John witnessed his mom have sex with a stranger. When he asked her about it the next day, she unhelpfully replied that, shame is a crucial component of growth. Like any reasonable person, John had once been a fan of cocaine and bourbon. 
Seven years previously, he'd made the mistake of combining the two with unprotected sex involving a woman he met in line at Trader Joe's. Sometimes sex is initiated simply by imbuing insignificance with significance, as happened with Tracy, who was buying chips and salsa, as was John. They had something in common. Thirty minutes later, they were fucking in her basement apartment. Cocaine and bourbon casts an odd, dissonant light on drunk strangers met in grocery stores. Back in her apartment, John was put off by Tracy's staggering collection of crystal turtles and her life-size cardboard cutout of basketball legend Scottie Pippen. However, and understandably, neither of these things diminished his desire to get inside Tracy's Buffalo Bill's Zubaz pants, the flimsy waistband of which offered little resistance to his chip-dusted hands. The sex lasted roughly eight minutes, after which John left. Back in his car, he realized he'd forgotten his wallet and went back to retrieve it. Tracy was already asleep in front of the Price's Right, so he grabbed it and backed out. It was weeks later when he noticed two things were missing. His diner's club card and his business card. The diner's club card was already maxed out, but the business card had three pieces of information on it he didn't want Tracy to have. His name, his phone number, and the place where he spent most of his time. The University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. Besides ruminating on what defined rock bottom for a week, John never thought about Tracy again. Nine and a half months later, however, his doctoral advisor told him a woman had left something, quote, unusual for him with the dean's secretary that he needed to see for himself. Like most people, John didn't like things he, quote, needed to see for himself and nervously headed towards the dean's where his secretary Sheila's face was contorted in a way he'd never seen before, as if she were attempting to hide, diminish, or enhance one or many possible emotions running through her bun-topped head. After asking Sheila twice what had been left for him and receiving no reply, John noticed the box in her lap and took it. Sheila looked as if she were about to watch a car crash. The plain cardboard box was heavy, and he was about to, and as he was about to open it, a small squeak came from inside, leading him to drop it out of fear. It hit the gray carpet with a wet thud, and when John looked down, a newborn baby looked up at him. He immediately vomited, some of which landed on the infant, and the rest on the rug. His initial response was guilt, knowing that Wanda, the cleaning lady, would spend an unpleasant night struggling to get regurgitated falafel and an Oreo blizzard out of what was fairly thick shag carpet. He remembered the baby when it squeaked again and looked at it. His first thought was that it had a fairly porcine face. His second was that from what he'd heard, dropping babies was inadvisable and often detrimental to their development. He picked the pig child up and put it on Sheila's desk, who'd vanished. The baby didn't look too bad for having been dropped five feet. He assumed the carpet had absorbed the shock. John had slept with a few women over the previous nine and a half months, so when he noticed a letter on the floor with the name Tracy written on it, he remembered the bleakest of his handful of recent encounters. He picked it up. It was a short note. Well, now this fucking thing's your problem, Johnny. Don't bother looking for me. I just got my Zamboni license, which gives me a hell of a lot of freedom.
Never Yours Fag, Tracy. All right, that was Brad Phillips reading from The Secret History of YouTube and the History Channel, which will come out probably next year. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed the Talking Book Podcast. I hope you enjoy your life. I hope you're having a nice time during the madness. You know, <clears throat> you know, I really do. I really hope you are. But anyway, my name's Chris Hartram. If you want to check out um, thetalkingbook.org, you should do that. You can check us out on Patreon if you want to join join up the good fight. We record books. We make audio books. We make this podcast. We're in Asheville, North Carolina, thetalkingbook.org. My name's Chris Hartram. Thanks, thanks to everybody. Big fans of you guys. Um, see you next time. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit Before I knew that you were there Like an angel Who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit Before I knew The storm was passing over And the wind blew